Okay, if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of 1 Peter, found towards the back, after the Gospels, after 13 letters of Paul, after the book of Hebrews, you have James, and then the epistle of 1 Peter. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Father, I covet the work of Your Holy Spirit to help me say only what is meant in the words of Holy Scripture. And I pray that Your presence be so strong that it causes worship here that it causes hearts to love the glory and the beauty of the Gospel that is seen in this morning's passage. To the glory of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our text this morning, in verses 3 and 4, and particularly verse 3, focuses us on the question, what does born again or new birth mean? back. Let's do that again. It focuses the question, what does he mean here about born again? Now, when we open up our Bibles in your quiet time or you're reading and reading sentences like anything else, you ask questions like, what is meant here? That's what good reading is. If you don't do that, you're not actually reading. And we all know that experience, right? You read and you think about, what did I just read the last 30 minutes? You have no idea. Well, you weren't reading. When you ask questions like, what does this mean? And you come up with answers, that is theology. Everyone does it. Whether we know it or not. We're all theologians in one way or another. And so what I want us to see in the larger context just for a minute here before we look at verse 3 is what He is doing here. Someone please close that door. What He is doing here in verses 3 to 12. Just look at it like a bird flying above a forest. Literally, look at your Bibles. All of those words right there are deep theology. All of those words are about what God does for the elect. He does not tell us to do anything in those verses. Totally against what so much of American evangelicalism preaches from pulpits. We gotta focus on telling people what you do, how you wake up, how you raise your children, how you do marriage. That's what practicality is. And here, remember, this is the Apostle Peter. This is the fisherman. This is the guy who shows up walking with Jesus for over three and a half years with a big mouth. And he's commissioned as an apostle. He's the lead figure. And all we have from him is this letter. 
and then a second one that's a little bit shorter. So Peter, give us what you got! And half of the first chapter has nothing to do with what you are to do. It is all about what God has done and is doing in Jesus Christ. You see verse 13? Look at it. That's why verse 13 begins with the word, now, here it goes, therefore. Now that word means nothing if we don't pay attention to what he says in verses literally 1 through 12. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation, second coming of Jesus Christ. You cannot hope if there is no content to hope in. If you are right now born again, there is a reality in you that means you love doctrine. That doctrine just a big word to say this. That means what the Bible intends to say to us, like in our passage, there's something about you because of new birth that means you're thrilled over such things. That's why I think Peter in verse 3 begins with, don't miss it, worship. Yes, these 12 verses are about what God does. Not about what we do. But they're not mere seminary class teaching. Get your theology right. They are worship. That's why he begins with, see it? Blessed. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are not throwaway words for Peter. He knows exactly what he's going to be saying in these 12 verses. He knows he's going to say, connected to what he already said last week, God chose people according to their foreknowledge. And he's going to say, God creates in them saving faith. And he's going to say, God is in absolute sovereign control over their lives and over their pain and over their suffering for the purpose of purifying, growing, molding that faith. He's going to say the Old Testament prophets prophesied about this. And so, he starts with this. Blessed be God for these next nine Verses. Worship must include the mind, if it's true worship. It includes the mind and the heart, the intellect and the emotions. Worship is the mind. It, it, it takes in information. Some of you are actually taking in some information in English that you're hearing right now because you understand this language and your mind is operating. And when you read the Bible, when you hear preaching, your mind is at work. It, worship includes that. It has to because the worship part is your heart. Loving. Delighting in what your mind sees in the truth of Holy Scripture, in the person of Jesus Christ. So, let's look at our text. Verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, 
literally, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So now notice what the Scripture says here. There is one main thing said. Not a bunch of main things. Just one. Meaning, there is one main statement or proposition. One main clause. A lot of homeschool moms, you should know language like this. There's one main clause. And that is right there when he says, He has caused us to be born again. That's the main thing. Then, connected to that, there are subordinate clauses that define and help unpack what he means by God caused us to be born again. And those are the four phrases. He did this according to His mercy. In His causing us to be born again, He produced or unto a living hope in the heart. The means through which God was enabled to do this was the atonement of Jesus. Through His resurrection. You don't have a resurrection without a death. And the end result of people who have been born again because of God's mercy, not because of something in them that created that living hope, is they will come into an imperishable inheritance. Okay, do you see that? That's what it says. Now, new birth caused us to be born again. New birth or Here's a, big, here's a big word. It means the same thing as new birth. If you open up a, a systematic theology, you'll see the big word regeneration. I mean, if I were to translate the Greek word here, anagenesis, very woodenly, wood, I think it, it, he's saying, God regenerated us. Anna, again, and you hear the word generated, made alive. God made alive again. Again, made alive. Believer. Those who believe, that's what He did. He made them alive or born alive or again a second time. Now, that term, born again, new birth, has a lot of baggage right now because we live in America and ever since really the 1970s. You had the Watergate scandal. You had a White House named Chuck Colson who went to prison over it with President Nixon and that whole cover-up. And Chuck Colson became a Christian. He was converted. He was born again. He wrote his little biography about that. It's a good little book, exciting book. And it was called Born Again. And then Jimmy Carter gets elected president. He is the first sitting United States president to ever declare, I'm a born-again Christian. It wasn't like this in the 1950s. The term wasn't used as readily. Now, born-again's everywhere. Born-again, those are those right-wing, you know, evangelical, Bible-thumping, closed-minded, you know, group, people, Christians. And since I became a Christian 28 years ago, it has always, literally, it has bugged me when I would hear fellow Christians say, I'm a born-again Christian. Because it's deceptive. It's redundant. If a person is not born again, they're not a Christian. Now, don't mishear me. What I just said there and what this sermon is about, it's not about terminology. It's about the reality of an act of God. So what I mean is this. Over the last couple thousand years, there are untold who knows how many human beings 
who never verbally referred to themselves as I'm born again, yet they were. And today in American evangelicalism, we may have millions of people who actually say with their mouth, yeah, I'm a born again, I'm a Christian, I'm a born again Christian. And they're not. It's not about terminology. It's about meaning. What does the Bible mean here through 1 Peter? God caused you to be born again. Notice here in our text, God is the subject of the verb regenerate or cause to be born again. It means God is the one who does that thing. And it says He does it based upon... It didn't say say how pretty you are. How good you are. What God foresaw that you would do in the future so He decided to cause you to be born. It doesn't say that. It says He did it according to His mercy. It says the means where God can do this and still remain just is that He sent His Son. And He, God, was pleased to have Him killed where He was punishing sinners with that substitute. And so, He raised Him from the dead. That's with a means of God being able to cause human beings to be born again. And notice, what is the result Not the cause of new birth here. The result is unto a living hope. This morning's sermon is not merely about, okay, I see God does this miraculous operating on the souls or the hearts of human beings. Okay, I got my theology right. It's about, have you been operated on? Has He caused you to be born again? Regenerated. Peter is writing with this assumption because he's writing to professing believers, to the churches in all these different provinces, this massive general letter. This, in Peter's mind, is, I would think, Peter... What is the Gospel? What is the most important things you can say in this letter we're going to be for eight, nine, ten months looking at? I don't think he blew it. I don't think he's going to blow it. And so he starts out with, blessed be, oh, what a glorious God caused us to be born again unto a living hope. I think the reason today that many of us conservative American evangelicals do not and explode with praise over the teaching, the doctrine, the biblical sayings about new birth is because we do not understand it. Or, we just refuse to believe it. The meaning of new birth in verse 3 is just crystal clear. God did not cause people to be born again based on something they did. It is not a reaction to something else outside of Himself. Hope or faith in Jesus does not create new birth. New birth creates hope or faith. In Jesus, you are born again unto a living hope. Not the other way around. God, He says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, fathered us into new life as His children. Because before that happened, we weren't His children in that way. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, we were children, all right. We were children 
of wrath. Means justice, divine punishment hung over our heads. And here he says he fathered us. Before that happened, we were dead to God, not alive to God, cut off from God and God from us. And then God came and made us alive. Or as Peter says, caused us to be born again. Why? According to His mercy. No, I want to go deeper. There is no deeper. Ask Paul in Romans 9. I'll have mercy on... Okay, okay, God, who are you going to have mercy on? What are you looking for? Paul's real clear. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. That's what he's saying. According to His mercy, through the instrument of the atonement of His Son whom He sent, which makes it possible, and then His operation of new birth results in this. There's a human being who has a living hope. (laughs) Meaning, it's no different than saving faith. Now, there's a guy who it is said that and probably means those who attend or services, has the largest church in the United States of America. And every week on his television program, he says, now pray this prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart. And then he opens his eyes and he says, if you prayed that prayer, we believe you got born again. Sad. Because he has no clue what he's talking about. It's not true. And it's important. We'll see that. In the biblical teaching of new birth, we human beings play no active role. Let me just give you a context what I mean. In conversion, the whole conversion process, we, we do play an active role. In justification, meaning being forgiven of your sins, having Jesus Christ, perfect humanity, put to your account. We play a role. We are justified, here's the role, by faith. Faith is something a human being participate. It is something that they have. It's something that flows out of their heart, their desire. It's called faith. That's active. In sanctification, the process of pursuing growth, holiness, we play an active role. The Gospel says, come unto Me, Jesus said. Got to hear it. You must come! That's active. You play a role there. It says, believe in the Gospel. Just believe. Don't Nothing else. Believe. And you'll be saved. You have to believe. It's an active role. Ongoing obedience to Christ. You must obey. Okay. But when it comes to the doctrine of new birth, We do not do anything that helps that come about. I want you to just listen to a couple texts outside of where our text is here, which looks to be very clear. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 13, just listen to the way the Holy Spirit had John Pennant. He says that Christ, Jesus, gave the power to become the children of God. Now note, children being born here, okay? The children of God to whom? To those who were born. Not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man but 
of God. Born of God. Again. In other words, what the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah about the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with His blood, they prophesied about what would be happening in the preaching of the Gospel. Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27, he writes, A new heart. This is God speaking. A new heart. Hear the surgeon cutting here now. A new heart I will give you. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. (laughs) And I will put my spirit within you. And I, God, will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to observe my ordinances. James, in his letter in the New Testament, writes, God chose to give us birth, literally in the Greek. He chose to give us birth by means of the Word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. So, let me say it again slowly and clearly. New birth must come first before a person can respond positively to the Gospel. New birth gives, produces saving faith. Now, we all know In our experiences, we have testimonies. I love hearing people's testimonies. If I don't know you, and I'll have you over for dinner, and I want to know. And I know, we talk about, well, this is how I was raised, this is what happened here, this is what was going on in my life, it was being torn apart, or, or. And then that person came to my life or I started reading the Bible and and you got all these pieces, all these means through which then you came and you realized, wow, I love the Gospel. I, I know now that I have personally embraced Jesus Christ. And Okay, testimonies. But when you really start to think about why did that happen? Why did that person come in your life? Why is it that then, and not eight years earlier when that person came to life, were you even interested? You start to think deeper of what happened. And, and we don't know. See, Jesus explained it this way in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Right? And then He says, So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What happened? Oh, I did something! Jesus said, you don't have a clue that wind was even coming. It blew. And it left an effect. A branch fell off a tree. Or you were a new person now in Jesus Christ. The church I belonged to for the first ten years had a, had, had a, had a strong connection with a state-run run drug rehabilitation center. And so, a lot of these guys would be dragged to church, thank goodness. And I noticed something. About out of every ten that would come up to make a confession of faith and say a prayer and start being a churchgoer, two of those ten something really happened. Out of two of those ten, I was there listening to a Bible study in, in the center as we had people from our church would go weekly and teach. Some of them, this is how it would work, 22 years old, and they would go to bed that night totally different. It wasn't the first time they heard the Gospel. But the wind blew! And for others, wind didn't blow. And time shows 
where their heart was. Let me make a clarifying statement about new birth. Some of us, because it happens in adulthood, we are more cognizant of from death to life than sometimes people were raised like in, in a Christian family and as far as they know, they always believed and into their teenage years, there is fruit and there's a real relationship and a love for Jesus. But the only reason that is, way back when, sometime, the wind blew. So, when you see radical transformations like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, okay, it doesn't mean, well, someone doesn't have that experience, therefore they're not born again. The evidence is, is there a living, alive, dynamic hope in Christ in the inheritance that is laid up for them in heaven? For instance... Let me read the way Jesus stated this in John chapter 3, verse 5. Quote, Unless one is born of water, and now by that he's probably referring to Ezekiel, the spiritual cleansing here. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that person cannot enter the kingdom of God. Right before that, he says, unless you're born again, he said, you cannot even see the kingdom. Now, I just wonder if it was true for you. From early on, in the early 80s as a young Christian, at times when I would stop long enough to think about the the just mind-boggling reality, I wake up every day, I'm a believer. And I start to think about statements like that. I, I didn't know what to do with so much of what I was taught because it was just said this way. Come. Hear this. You, you believe that? Well, no one's defining belief here. No one's defining what saving faith is. Do you, I mean, you acquiesce to this truth about Christ. Say this prayer. Ask Jesus to come here and then you'll get born again like the guy on TV. And... I hear Jesus say stuff like that. I'm thinking, but I think faith is more than mental assent. Okay, acquiesce to, okay, Jesus is Lord. No change in the heart. And Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom. I'm thinking, I, I couldn't connect them. How in the world could I have the faith that saves, which would produce new birth, if I can't see the kingdom? years later finally just letting the Bible speak pieces because it meant what it said you can't see and you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again Jesus in John chapter 6 verse 44 said it this way no one can come to me That's dreary. No one can come to me unless... Now, unless what, Jesus? Unless I come to you? Unless the Father who sent me literally drags me. Same word for dragging the nets with the fish in it. In Acts chapter 16, and I mean from early on because none of my teachers just let the Scripture that we're seeing this morning unfold for what it said. This text, because I knew, I, had, I came into Christianity like everybody else. We have presuppositions about who God ought to be and the way we think things ought to work. And I'm going to tell you, this passage bugged me. I knew it. It couldn't mean what it said. When it says in Acts 16, verse 14, Paul's preaching down by the river. And then, why did, why did Luke put it in here like this? The Lord opened Lydia's heart 
to give heed to what was said by Paul. Well, no, he does it for everybody. Then why write it? See, the problem with all of us, my little sinful kids and their daddy, is that we are born sinners. This is the problem, the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He said, a natural man, Joe LeMay, just by virtue of being born in a descendant of Adam, a sinner, a natural man, he means here now, without the work of the Spirit, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Because to them, they, that is the Gospel, the things that come from the Spirit of God in the preaching of the Gospel, they are foolishness to Him. And He cannot understand or welcome them because they are only spirit, spiritually deciphered. Or discerned. I'm doomed. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 2. We're like everybody else. He's talking to those who have been changed now. They're Christians. And he says, we're just like all the rest. We are following the dictates of our flesh and our sinful desires like the rest of mankind. We're absolutely no better. Children of wrath. And then in verse 4, this glorious transition. He says, but, God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which He loved us, He made us alive together with Christ. Trust me. I'm gonna, don't trust me. Think about it. Paul knows what he's saying. That's why he now inserts. This is what he means. He's saying, do you understand what happened, do you? And so he says, by grace, have you been saved? He's going to say it again just a couple verses later. But he wants to make clear, do you hear what I just said, Paul's saying? You were doomed. You deserved God's wrath forever. But the Gospel came. But not only did the Gospel come, but God made us alive by grace. Have you been saved? The Gospel is not just that God made it possible for people to be saved from their sin through Jesus Christ. If those people can do something to their heart and add the last piece of the puzzle of salvation to which they can forever now boast. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection purchased it all. Everything we needed. That's why if you continue on in Ephesians, but God made us alive, He says, very, very popular verses, verses 8 and 9, He says, here it is, foundational, you get what I just said? Because by grace have you been saved. Through faith. I mean, you came to believe. And then He says, and this, he means the grace, the faith, that whole ball. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Now get it. Not as a result of works. Why? So that no one will boast. No boasting. If we understand how He saved us, all room for boasting is gone. 
You know, after last week's sermon on the first two verses, he's chosen according to his foreknowledge. One of the most thrilling things I heard from someone after that sermon was this. I heard it. And I hated it. And I loved what they said. Because I knew what they meant. And he said what he meant. I don't like being out of control of my life totally. The idea that God is that sovereign. Here's the point. It does something to my pride. And that told me that person got it. And I think Paul got it. So that no one will boast. See, since I was a little child, I was raised in church. I had always believed. What do I mean? I had always, if you asked me at age 5 or 10 or 14 or 16, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who became a human being in order that He may live on our behalf perfectly and die a sacrificial death? And that God raised that human being really, actually, historically, and bodily from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. Yes! I would have fought you over if you tried to say I didn't believe it. But if I would have died at age 15 or 16 or 17, I would have went to hell because I did not have saving faith. At age 19, wait, hear it? For some reason, the, the wind, the wind blew. And I began to have an insatiable desire for the first time in my life to pick up the Bible and start reading. In a, I, for the first time in my life, started to realize whether I died 3,462 years from now and stood before God or tomorrow, there is no difference. I was overwhelmed with the sin and the ugliness of my heart for who knows why. And then in reading the Bible, nothing changed about my mind, my mental acquiescence to some of those statements about Jesus. But what changed was, and there was no Christian person in my life saying, hey, you got to convert. It wasn't any of that. What changed was, it's real! Why? I don't know. Other than, it was like the wind. It was, that's, that's real. And that means that's the greatest possible news in all the world. I didn't know what the word meant. I don't even know if I heard the word. It doesn't matter. I was born again. That is what happened. See, the problem with so many of us in today's church is that we have been taught out of believing many biblical texts. We have been taught that God did not do the decisive act. But we did the ultimately decisive act of believing. Another way to say it is this, at least what I'm saying. Many of us evangelicals do not believe what Peter is teaching clearly in our text. We don't believe what Jesus was clearly saying, especially in the Gospel of John. We don't believe what Paul teaches us about this. What do I mean? Think about it. I think if right now, out of ten thousands of churches throughout this country, and, and I mean and I mean people that are brothers and sisters and will be in heaven because they have been born again. But ask, do surveys this morning. Stand outside churches 
conservative evangelical churches and ask people, first the stupid question, uh, how do you know you've been born? Now after looking at you like you're an idiot, what do you, I'm standing in front of you? I'm not in my mother's womb anymore, right? Touch me, feel me. I, I exist. I'm right here, okay? They don't go looking for proof. Let me go get my birth certificate and I'll show you. Give me your address. I'm here! Well, then you ask him the next question. How do you know you've been born again? Oh, they do. So few would answer because I exist as a believer. That's how I know I'm born again. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. He has changed my life. I love Him. I was once dead my, my entire life. Oh, even in my good deeds, even in religion, even in thinking how great I was and I wasn't as bad as the other person. My life loved pride, sin. And then something that changed. Now, wait, let me see. Peter's going to go on. We're going to see this in the weeks to come. Just jump down a couple of verses to verses 8 and 9. Because he does tell us in our, in our passage, we've been born again unto a living hope. And he sa- he's just going to unpack that. What is this saving faith? And yes, there's a sense. You want the simple gospel. Christ came, lived perfect life as a real human being, died bearing the wrath of God, and God raised him from the dead. Believe. What does believe mean? It means verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and is filled with glory, attaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Okay, so how do you know you've been born again? Because I love Him. We don't hear that answer. Instead, well, because I did what you need to do in order to be born again. I said the sinner's prayer. I walked an aisle, signed a card, was baptized. Made my confirmation in the eighth grade. Okay, let me be really clear here now. I came to true, genuine, saving faith. No. No. There's nothing in you to point. There are only evidences in you to point that God did it. And there's a huge difference. So why is there such a... Born? I exist. How do you know you're born again? Big difference, people. So often don't say. True believers don't say. Because I exist. As a believer. I know I got the evidences that it's real. The reason is because we have teachers in the church that don't teach what the text are saying. And then it becomes incultural. And it just becomes standard and normal. You know, we got systems. I mean, there, there are millions of Christians that, who would come here, if they, or if they would ask me, hey, after every service, do you have an altar call to come up and have someone accept Jesus as their Savior? They would, they would say, I would never send a human being to your church. They have a theology, like I have a theology, and they differ on this. There's nothing to point to when it comes to the doctrine of new birth. Now this distinction that I'm making here, that the Bible is making, it's important and it is crucial. Because depending on what you understand to be happening 
or not happening. Or if you think that you're causing and you tell other people that they can cause new birth, it is, this is my opinion, it is this idea that you can do this and do that in order to be born again is creating and has been creating untold millions of false conversions in the guise of conservative evangelical Christianity. People are told, if you do such and such, then you are saved. It's not true. If you believe, you will be saved. And they don't define belief, nor how that comes about. So people say, okay, I'll do that. Sure, man, I've been strung out on drugs, alcohol, or I'm just, you know, I don't know. I, I got married and have kids now, and I guess it's time to start going to church so my kids can have some good morality. You raise your hand. Okay, I'm a Christian. And they're all told, I'm a Christian. Now I'm even a born-again Christian. And the operation of God on the heart called regeneration or new birth has not happened. And therefore, it is really on the verge of vicious for people like me, church leaders, to tell the person, you're fine. You're saved. You're going to heaven. I can't read their heart. You could tell me. I can't tell you that. On my honeymoon 16 and a half years ago, I read these words. And I was really struggling through a lot of these issues. And it was the first time I read these words when I brought uh, John Piper's book with me, Desiring God. And see, I knew almost from the get-go of my conversion back in 1981, there was a big problem. Something didn't seem to be right. You had people that seemed to actually love Christ and others, they're just like my religious background. But they're in my church or churches. I mean, what's going on? Piper writes, and I think he's dead right, we are surrounded by unconverted people who think they do believe in Jesus. Drunks on the streets say they believe. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe. All kinds of lukewarm, world-loving church attenders say they believe in Jesus. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. There's always going to be some. Jesus promised us the church would never be pure. But when we got such watered-down, unclear, and even false ideas about the Gospel, and particularly new birth, then we just help create more. And one big helper was Charles Finney back in the early 1800s. A lot of you just don't, you don't know this, but there, we live in a style of evangelism that's come down the road in American Christianity from Finney in the early 1800s. He was doing something brand new in church history built on fallacious biblical theological grounds on almost just sit in the front row and you've got to come to a place of persuasion, persuasion, feel, feel. And so human beings can cause other human beings to be born again. It's ultimately where it was. And so we have altar calls coming out of that in the way that we do them now, today's world. New birth is not saving faith. They're not equivalent. New birth produces or causes saving faith. Now, hear me. It is true that in order to be, as the Bible says, saved from your sin, or our text says, in order to inherit eternal life, you must 
the Gospel. You must embrace Him. Receive Him. You must have a heart that is enraptured with Him. You must love Him though you don't see Him and and have within you an inexpressible joy and filled with glory while you're screaming in pain. We're going to see this is the context of 1 Peter chapter 1. The question is, what is, what is that? What is that saving faith? And throughout this letter of Peter, we will see that more closely and clearly this morning as opposed to unpacking what is saving faith as opposed to other kinds of belief. We're not going to go there. This morning, we are simply seeing in this text, making this statement, that that saving faith is that which is produced or brought about by an act of God based upon His mercy. Thus there's faith. Thus there is a changed heart. Thus your desires, your taste buds for Christ, for the truth, for the Gospel, were yuck! Take your worst, like George Bush the first, broccoli! Now you love it. And that's an evidence. Something changed. The wind blew. That's what we see this morning. So, let me wrap up, not not yet, let me wrap up this together with what we saw last week. Because the body of the letter starts in verse 3. Last week was the introduction to the letter. But remember last week, Peter could not wait. Within the introduction of the letter, Peter just unfolded and explained the doctrine of God's choosing, election. If he didn't do that in the standard salutation like he did, then I think that's exactly where he would start in verse 3. So we see Peter has said, God chose you. Believer. You believer? He chose you according to His choosing. His foreknowledge. Go back to last week's sermon. And then remember what it said last week. And He did it by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It means the Holy Spirit came and blew. Set you apart. That's what He means here. He caused you by the Spirit to be born again. Now, don't miss this. The way God does this is not in a vacuum. He does this work of new birth through the instrument, the means. In other words, the Spirit comes and causes sinful, dead human beings to be raised to spiritual life and believe in Christ through the means of the Word of God. The Gospel. The preaching. The hearing of it. That's you got to look at. Look at verse 23, chapter 1. In verse 3, we see God caused us to be born again. His act. Down at verse 23, Peter writes, Since you have been born again, now listen to him, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, that means the means, through the living and abiding Word of God. Okay. For Peter, he says, the Word of God is the seed. Now, I'm going to use an illustration here for a second. You cannot have a baby. You cannot give birth to a baby with just a man's Now, the word seed here in the Greek is sporos. That's the word we get in English, sperm. Nor can a woman, though she's producing eggs every month, she can never have a baby without the man's seed. The seed has to meet the egg. 
And so in verse 3, he says, It is God who did this, caused us to be born again. And in verse 23, he makes it clear, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. That is through the living and the abiding Word of God. And he makes it clear in verse 25. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So what's that mean? You've got to have both. If you keep the eggs over here and you keep the sperm over there, never will there be reproduction. But both are necessary for birth and for new birth. You preach the Gospel and what happens? I'll tell you what happens. Not everybody is born again through it. Have you noticed that? <laughs> what happens? The wind blows. And the most unexpected person comes to faith. And many times, the one you would expect, just the hearts are hard. Listen to how Paul describes this again in 1 Corinthians. He says, we preach the seed. The seed goes out. The seed goes out indiscriminately. You don't know who these people are. You preach it to everybody. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified. Okay, what's the response? He says, it's a stumbling block to Jews. doesn't fit. And it's foolishness to everybody else. Does that sound like they're getting saved? They're not. When you hear the good news of Jesus and your heart is unmoved, or worse, stumbling block doesn't fit my religiosity, or stupid, foolish, you're not one of those who is a Christian person. But then he says, but to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When the seed meets the egg of the Holy Spirit, there is new birth, conception, new life. Totally changed human being. And so as we close, believers, believers are to understand what really happened to us. So, we're supposed to answer the question, how do you know you're born again? Like this. I'm born again because I exist as a believer. I mean, I love Jesus. Oh, I'm broken. Oh, sin's there. And I hate my sin. But I'll tell you, the Word of God is my life. I'm hungry to know. See, I'm giving evidences, not causes. That's how I know my life is filled with daily repentance. Because there's something significantly, the egg of the Holy Spirit, in me that hates the sin that is still with me and that I act out. I know I'm born again because it was God according to His mercy who called me to faith based upon His choosing me according to His foreknowledge. He did it all. He gets all the glory. The cross of Jesus did not merely make it possible for me, Joe LeMay, to be saved. If somehow I could, of my own autonomous, dead, sinful self, be a little bit morally better than some of my siblings who still remain outside of Christ. Because I'm going to tell you, to see and to choose the Son of God as your Savior, you don't get a higher moral act than that. Believer, don't appeal to that. Appeal to. 
I have chosen because you have caused me to be born again. You chose me. I'll tell you why. That means, Jesus, when you died on the cross, my sins were not merely hypothetically nailed to that cross. If somehow, apart from your miraculous operation, I would morally bring myself to faith. From before the foundation of the world. And I'm going to tell you, this is, I can only imagine that when we, some of us, will get an opportunity to actually be dying instead of just get killed. When you're dying on your deathbed, this has to be precious. My sins, mine particularly, they were paid for on the cross of Jesus. I know this because you brought the Word and the egg together and you produced a new living hope in me. To God and to God alone be all the glory. So, Father, now this gives me such great confidence that in the foolishness of this gospel being preached, you may even now miraculously be causing new birth instantaneously. You're pricking hearts. Sin is becoming real and personal in a way it never has. And the preciousness of Jesus is becoming the object of eternal delights. This is your work. We beg of you to the glory of your name. Continue to do this. This morning. Amen.